Welcome to the Post Status Review with Jim Babka. I'm your co-host, Howard, and with me, as always, the man with the plan himself, Mr. Jim Babka. Hello, Howard. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, just a side note for those of you who are new to our podcast, uh, Jim is the founder of DC.org. Uh, or Downsize DC, their website is DownsizeDC.org, and co-founder of the Zero Aggression Project with Perry Willis. Yes, and I'm sitting here struggling again, once again with my cough. I'm, I'm basically better. It seems to be allergy-induced, but it could kick in at any moment. So uh, I apologize to our listeners in advance if and when that should happen. I will try not to laugh because that's when it gets to be the worst. But um, I'm, it's, I'm fine overall. It's just I've got this, this nagging cough. Yeah, and I will do my best to work my awesome editing magic so that our poor listeners don't have to uh, deal with the cough in their ear. Okay. We, we've got a, a press release we're going to go through some of. It's uh, Dick's Sporting Goods. And uh, they basically had announced that they would uh, make some changes with uh, how they were going to handle firearms in their stores. And uh, Howard, if you would, I'd like you to read some elements of this. And I just want to respond to some of the points that are in this press release. Sure. Let's uh, let's start at the top here. It says, we at Dick Sporting Goods are deeply disturbed and saddened by the tragic events in Parkland. Our thoughts and prayers are with all the victims and their loved ones, but thoughts and prayers are not enough. There's this meme making the rounds that has the two uh, kids that go to Parkland who have become kind of the most famous uh, out of that tragic event. And it's a picture of the two of them. And it says on the meme, have you met our Lord and Savior, the state? And Howard, I can't help but think that uh, that, the, that there is a com- competition amongst deities. The Bible says, "Thou shalt have no other gods before me" in the Ten Commandments. But I think all gods say that, and I think these people are worshiping the state. They believe that prayers have no efficacy or value. I don't think they fundamentally understand uh, what why people pray or why they offer prayers. Uh, we don't expect God to deliver everything that we want. Uh, people who oh, those of us who do pray, that's that's not we. In fact, part of the reason we pray is that we realize He's a lot bigger than we are. Um, and so we don't understand all his ways, but, but, uh, uh, to them, the only efficacious supplication would be made to the state. You've got to have a political program. You've got to have a government solution. And that is the only way that you actually demonstrate you care is by praying to their deity instead of to yours. So let's go on. Yeah, we want to drop down to uh, another section here where it says, we support and respect the Second Amendment, and we recognize and appreciate that the vast majority of gun owners in this country are responsible, law-abiding citizens. The clause shall not be infringed appears in the Second Amendment. And Howard, I cannot imagine a smaller word that could have been picked. And by small, I mean it means not even a little teeny tiny bit, right? Don't, don't, push it don't pierce it don't don't do a little tiny infraction infringement is 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 the smallest it's the very border of the question so this is an absolute right this second amendment right you cannot speak in this bifurcated politician style language where you pretend to have it both ways if you believe there need to be restrictions on guns you no longer believe in the second amendment period so let's go on let's look at some more of this Certainly. The next portion of the memo that we want to take a look at says, we believe it's time to do something about it. Beginning today, Dick's Sporting Goods is committed to the following. We will no longer sell assault-style rifles, as referred to 
as modern sporting rifles. We had already removed them from all Dick's stores after the Sandy Hook massacre, but we will now remove them from sale at all 35 field and stream stores. We will no longer sell firearms to anyone under 21 years of age, and we will no longer sell high-capacity magazines. Okay, there's something really important that needs to be pointed out here. We just got through talking about the state has to be the solution, right? And many of the people who believe this, that hold this view are of the political left. And it is common for them to also point out to us that corporations are big and greedy, that all they actually care about is profit. And because they are so obsessed with profit, they will constantly act immoral. They will not think anything of the community. They care nothing about anything but their bottom line. They got to get as much money as they possibly can. Here they are saying, we're going to stop selling something we're already selling. We're going to narrow the age to whom we sell a whole line of products, and we are also going to eliminate another product from our line. So they're eliminating two products from their line, and they're limiting, they're taking a whole audience of people that would come in and buy a certain product and saying, nope, we're not going to sell to them either. All of these things are counter to the so-called profit-making instincts. So what's going on here? It turns out that voluntary action, that the marketplace, you have more power as a consumer than you do as a citizen. We make this point over at the Zero Aggression Project. If you're a consumer and you don't like something that the company's doing, you have a, a wide array of options. You can cannot shop there anymore. You can uh, get others, gather others to not shop there anymore. That's called a boycott. You can uh, post reviews about their product online. You could sell their stock so that the stock uh, helped to drive the stock down. There's any number of things that you can do as a consumer, and companies are immediately responsive to you. I like to make the point that people go into like a hamburger joint and uh, they don't like the fact they asked to hold the pickles, but the pickles showed up anyway. So they can put on as big a scene as they wish. They can call for the manager, they can get a refund, they can get their product replaced, and they can still choose to not come back to the place and tell all their friends what a bad experience they had. And companies are sensitive to this. Their reputation matters to them. Now, imagine telling a politician in the same way, going and yelling at him and getting anywhere near the response that you would get at the hamburger joint. And hamburgers are far less important than the, the matters that politicians regulate on a day-to-day basis. Here is a company acting. They acted on their own. These actions are always available. It's the cause of a libertarian to work from a persuasive uh, perspective. And here, Dix was persuaded that it was in their best interest as members of the community to forego what appeared to be immediate profits. So let's. there's one more item on the list. Let's take a look at that. It says, we have never excuse me, we never have and never will sell bump stocks that allow semi-automatic weapons to fire more rapidly. Oh, and this just cracks me up. Economists know that there's something called the substitution effect. That is that if something is made illegal or banned or prohibited, then a substitute will, will show up in its place. The substitute is often clunky, sometimes dangerous, often more expensive, less effective. Okay. So, you know, you, in, during prohibition, they had bathtub gin, which killed people. Okay, so here in the case of the of, uh, automatic weapons are basically banned. Now, there's there's some technicalities to that, but nobody's going in to, <laughs> or was going in even before Sandy Hook and buying a automatic weapon from Dick Sporting Goods. We're going to talk about this more in just a second. The bump stock was designed to s- simulate or to encourage the trigger pull to happen faster. So it literally shakes the the weapon so that the the trigger finger is pulling it more rapidly. 
But what you sacrifice, what people don't understand is that you sacrifice accuracy for doing this. I mean, it gets really bad. Plus, you're just blowing a lot of ammo, which is quite expensive. Bump stocks don't really make sense. And banning them isn't going to make most people, anyone safer. In fact, we only have one incident where it appears that maybe it was used. And that's the very, very, very strange, very odd story uh, in Las Vegas. But in schools, there's the bump stocks haven't been used there. And it wouldn't make sense to use a bump stock because literally you're going to go through your ammunition much quicker and have less accuracy. So this, this is symbolic. And the only reason bump stocks exist because they're stupid. The only reason they exist is this substitution effect to replace a prohibited product. They go on in the in the memo to to quote unquote implore elected officials to enact common sense gun reform and pass the following regulations. The first of which being to ban assault style firearms. Okay, and and of course the the one that's being talked about in these scenarios is an AR fifteen. And if I understand correctly, Howard, you own an AR fifteen, right? I do. Tell the audience a little bit about what an AR-15 is and what it is that people are misunderstanding about this weapon. So really, when it comes to the AR-15, the thing that is that differentiates it is the type of material that the body of the weapon is made from. So your lower receiver is metal, and typically it's black. Um, your upper portion of that, which contains the barrel, also black and metal, which makes it look like something that the military would use. But the overall action of an AR-15 is, is very similar to multiple hunting rifles and shotguns that exist on the market today. And that's the semi-automatic action, which means that when I pull the trigger, a round fires. And that's all I have to do is pull the trigger to make a round fire. I don't have to do some manual process to reload or load a new uh, round into the chamber. It happens automatically through the way the weapon's designed. And there are multiple, multiple uh, semi-automatic weapons that are not um, big and scary, quote unquote, that have the same action. So, so the the assault weapons ban basically amounts to a set of cosmetics. It's not really about the function of the weapon; it's more about the cosmetics of the weapon, for the most part. That's exactly the case. Let's go on. The next common sense gun reform regulation that they suggest is to raise the minimum age to purchase firearms to twenty one. You know, there's a couple of things I don't understand about our rights. I don't understand how anybody could think that our rights are only location specific, right? So you don't have a right to be to self-defense inside various public buildings. And also that you would have some limitation based on your adult age. We send young men and women. You were in the military, Howard, right? How many people in the military, percentage wise, would you guess, are between the ages of 18 and 21? Specifically in the combat arms um, jobs that are in the military, uh, what my experience was, it was probably 30 to 35 percent of the guys in my unit were between 18 and 21. Okay, so this is this is this just uh, the logic here kind of just blows my mind. There's there's two things that are that are strange here. Number one, we are putting a rifle into the hands of someone who is under 21 years of age and sending them off to die. We're telling them they can go die for their country and they can have a gun for that, but they cannot be trusted to go and purchase one on their own, if you know, barring any you know criminal record or whatever. That's number one. And that's just really, really strange to me. It feels hypocritical to me. But the weapon we're actually putting in their hands, it doesn't just look like a combat weapon. It's an actual automatic weapon. 
So the idea that we're going to, you know, uh, that we should ban this thing. Listen, Dix already did the most important thing if they felt in their value system or their reputation that that guns shouldn't be sold to people under 21. They, they did the right thing. They stopped selling them. There's no reason that they should take away the rights of other 21-year-olds not shopping at their store. It's frankly none of their business. Uh, there's more here on this list, though. They've got some other uh, great ideas. There is. The, and the next one is to require universal background checks that include relevant mental health information and previous interactions with the law. So everything that I have said up to this point, Howard, you know, there are people who are gun rights enthusiasts who have been cheering me. They're like, yeah, Jim, you tell them. Well, now it's my turn to tell you because I'm seeing in, uh, far too many comments and posts on Facebook uh, in the wake of these recent events, uh, going back now, you know, a few years by gun owners who are merely who, who will accuse uh, people who want these things, uh, uh, these bans of being what they call hoplophobes, meaning that they have a fear of an inanimate object or a self-defense tool. They have a fear of that tool. Hoplophobia, they call it. Well, they're just doing the same thing. They're just they're they're substituting for guns psychotropic drugs. Um, very very few people these guns sh- these these mass shootings are very rare. Very very few people who are taking something uh, to help them with an emotional issue that has been prescribed to them are 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 go out and conduct mass shootings. Go out and murder people. Even it's it's this is not the common thing. There are lots of people who need these tools or believe they need these tools. And this is not a, we're not here to debate mental health, mind you. All I'm saying is everyone should be able to live their life, make their own choices with their own professionals and personal advisors in their life. They should make those choices for themselves. And they, until they have hurt someone, it's nobody else's business how they've chosen to exercise their rights. Their pursuit of happiness applies as well. And so I, I'm concerned that instead of trying, that we've tried to deflect blame onto another inanimate object. Um, and, and I, I think that that could have really bad effects for people who actually, uh, believe they need these medications or may actually need these medications. And I, I think we should, this is an, a line of argument that we should avoid. Agreed. Uh, let's, let's move on to the next point. It says, uh, ensure a complete universal database of those banned from buying firearms. I can't stand this proposal. I mean, this one actually bothers me the most. So there is in existence right now, something called the no fly list. And very famously, when it first came out, then-Senator Ted Kennedy, now deceased, ended up on the no-fly list temporarily. The no-fly list is not a due process method. It's not a, you don't get notified that you've been placed in the new, on, the, on that list. You aren't uh, called to confront your accusers that got you put on that list. You don't even necessarily know the data. It's secret how you ended up on such a list. This is exactly the type of list they want to maintain. In fact, one of the lists they want to reference when, when deciding whether or not you can legally purchase a firearm is that list. Are you on the no-fly list? And they, they make this argument. It seems like it makes sense on, com- on the surface, you know, that if you're already on the no-fly list, you know, why are we selling guns to you? In other words, if you're already a known terrorist, why would we sell guns to you? Well, the problem is there's lots and lots of names on that list. It's a very large list. And if they were all terrorists, we'd be seeing uh, quite a few terrorist events happening. Uh, You know, there'd be one every week in this country. But there isn't. And so the idea that somehow or other you could be placed on a secret list for any variety of reasons, whether it's mental health, as we just covered, or it's because of, you know, someone didn't like you or you accidentally ended up there through clerical error. Error. Maybe Howard Salter, who lives on the other side of Florida, Howard, is is doing bad things, and your name ends up on that list, and you can't purchase a firearm. This is a bad, bad idea. It violates the very American principle of due process. If you want to find a way to take uh, guns from someone who is threatening somebody, 
I'm, I'm right there with you. Threatening is bad and dangerous and shouldn't be done and it should be treated as a crime. But the idea that we're going to just throw the due process out, no, that's, that's a terrible idea. Agreed. I can't imagine that losing due process for an American citizen. The, the next point on the list is to close the private sale and gun show loophole that waived the necessity of background checks. Anytime you hear somebody use the, the word loophole, what they're really saying is that you have a right I don't like, okay? Uh, when you go and you fill out your taxes, as everybody's starting to do, this coming this that time of year, right? We give up our spring day to go spend time working for the IRS. And while we're filling out these forms, we're going to claim as many deductions as we have available to us and pay the minimum amount of tax that we actually owe. That's called obeying the law, okay? If you sold a gun through a quote-unquote loophole, it means you did it legally. So here's what they're actually talking about. A private sale means that, for example, uh, I can sell to somebody who I've known all my life who lives next door to me. But Howard, you and I are separated geographically right now. You are in Florida and I am in Ohio. And if you wanted to uh, uh, gift or sell me, either one, a firearm, we could not do that transaction without background checks and, and the entire sales process in place, you would have to find a licensed dealer in your state who would communicate with a licensed dealer in my state. They would act as intermediaries. A background check on me would be done, and then the weapon could be transferred to me through those channels, and we would have to pay each of these gentlemen or ladies who participated in this process for helping facilitate our transaction, even if it was a gift, okay? But if, you know, listen, let me give an analogy that almost everybody will understand because guns seem different or unusual or strange to some people. But imagine needing a, your kid setting up a lemonade stand and you need a permit for that. Or you're going to have a garage sale and you need a permit for that. And you have to allow inspectors to come through and tell you what you can or cannot do in your garage sale and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, people would revolt against that idea. And that's essentially what they're calling for here. They're calling for a means to monitor garage sales. They're calling for a means to monitor transactions that often occur between people, between friends who live near each other and have known each other for a very long time. So uh, it, there are laws that right now on the books that prevent you uh, um, selling to somebody, uh, your gun to somebody that you know happens to be a felon and can't buy guns. If you tried to get around that, they've got a law for that. So what we're talking about here is literally a very normal, legal, friendly transaction between neighbors or relatives, and they want in on those transactions as well. It's not necessary, and there's no evidence at this point that this has been part of the mass shooting epidemic. I think it's, uh, it's indicative of, of really their approach here to this whole process. And we see it in this summary statement that they give towards the end of the memo. It says, some will say these steps can't guarantee tragedies like Parkland will never happen again. They may be correct, but if common sense reform is enacted and even one life is saved, it will have been worth it. Okay, so let's grab onto that phrase. If even one life is saved. During the Clinton administration, Janet Reno was the attorney general. This was an administration that, that enacted the assault weapons ban. They had the Bradys come in. They were very much in support of, of gun control and gun regulations and, and restricting the use and, and ownership of firearms. And, and that was kind of the peak of that movement. It actually peaked in the, in the mid-1990s during the Clinton administration. So they're not going to exaggerate the following number. How many times, according to the Justice Department survey back of that era, how many times were weapons, firearms, used 
in to stop to prevent a crime. Now, there's two ways it could have been used: a, a weapon could have the weapon could have been discharged, or it could have simply been brandished. And they estimated that number, Howard, to be 137,000 times per year. 137 crimes interrupted, stopped, prevented, blocked. 137,000 times by some often just the mere brandishment of a firearm. Now, that number is really low. There's other people who've looked at that number, and depending on whose statistics and methods you, you, you uh, rely on, that number could have easily been over half a million. It could have been, there was one guy that I think accurately put it at 2 million. There was another guy that put it at 2.5, which is probably high. But no matter what number you choose to believe, 137,000 is an extraordinary number. So now a, a shooting has started in a school bad thing, something bad has really begun to happen. Okay. We know that there are teachers who've offered themselves as virtual meat shields. They have had no weapon at hand, no other method to try to save the lives of children in front of them, except to throw themselves in front of the gun. But when, when, and so what if they could instead interrupt the shooter's pattern and fire back? What if they could even hit the shooter? They don't need to necessarily hit the shooter. What we know from past mass shooting events is that as soon as a shooter is shot back at, they tend to stop. And one of two things happens. They flee the scene, and even more commonly, they off themselves. And so uh, they, they're going into these no-gun zones. These mass shootings, 98% of the shootings that happen in, uh, where, uh, by the old FBI definition, where there's five or more people wounded in the shooting, and it's happening in a public place, not a private residence. In those cases, 98% of these events are in, in, in places where it is illegal to carry a gun in the first place. So they know it's posted. These, are, these are, are zones that are basically very, very dangerous. No gun zones that are very, very dangerous. No self-defense zones. And so it seems to me that those of us and, that are, are, are advocating for the use of defensive handguns, we actually want to, in that situation, save the one life. We want to prevent the massacre. We want it to stop. We want to, it's already happening. It, bad things are, are, have started. Can we arrest the progress of this event so that instead of 17 children dying, maybe only two of them did? Two it's definitely a tragedy, but why did it have to go to 17? Why everybody cowered and waited for law enforcement to arrive with weapons? Yes, I'm with Dix. If we can save even one life, but I think the methods they're choosing are the wrong ones. And let's let's go on. Let's move on to our next topic. But before we move on to the next topic, I'd like to point out that uh, Downsize DC does have a campaign regarding school the school shootings problem. Yes, yes, and I'm glad you brought that up because maybe I ended uh, that segment a little too abruptly, but we do have a uh, campaign that we started called the Armed Teachers School Choice Campaign. So we found that uh, a Rasmussen survey, and this is one of two polls out, Politico has one as well, the Rasmussen survey said that the majority of Americans oppose armed teachers, and we're not entirely surprised about that. Only 43% support it for uh, uh, the idea, but when we went to the, when you, you take a look at the tabs and you see where, where they asked, do you have a child of school age right now? That number then went up above 50%. A majority of parents with school age children favor 
having armed teachers. Now, the libertarian position, Howard, is not that you uh, should have to own a gun or that you should have to send your children to a school where the teachers are armed. The libertarian position is that you, as a parent, should have choice. The libertarian position is that you should be free to live by your values and choose an education that matches your values. And if you don't want your child in a school where guns are present, you think they are safer in a in one of these no no gun zones, then great, you should be able to make that choice. The problem is that the government has has actively uh, undermined uh, private schooling, uh, made homeschooling less attractive or harder. Uh, policies need to be put in place that encourage school choice. And the more that we encourage choice in this matter, the more parents can choose a school that matches their values. And this debate that we have, this culture war, basically comes to an end. So the name of the campaign is actually Most Parents Favor Armed Teachers. School choice would satisfy both sides. It can be found at downsizedca.org. In this case, if you go to the menu, look for the item that says Flash Actions. This is our most recent Flash Action as I'm sitting here recording with you. Uh, Most Parents Favor Armed Teachers. School choice would satisfy both sides. Speak up for school choice. At, with this campaign at downsizedc.org. You can send a letter to your representative or two senators. The system helps you discover who those people are and delivers that ma- message to the, all three offices simultaneously. There's no cost to this. It's very easy to use, downsizedc.org. Two weeks ago in our first episode, we we talked about healthcare and you talked about uh, your, your doctor. So the in fact, that's the topic we got the most feedback on was you losing your doctor. And in more than one message, it was implied that you were blaming Obama or Obamacare for losing your doctor. Well, that's certainly the biggest factor uh, in my personal episodes. But my doctor retired because he didn't want to practice any longer on Obamacare. And I think we were clear that that was also what was driving consolidation uh, amongst healthcare practices. Right. But the consolidation of general practitioners is uh, it's a pretty big subject. I mean, do libertarians actually argue that the trouble started with Obamacare? No, no. So let me take a long time now. Uh, sit back, you know, uh, grab a pipe or smoking device or whatever, you know, vape if you wish. As I explained to you, the fact that we haven't really had a free market in healthcare in America, at least in health insurance, since 1869. 1869, because back then there was uh, the ability for states to intrude upon insurance across state lines was challenged in a case called Paul v. Virginia. And this was a case that should have been like tailor-made for uh, uh, commerce clause application, which would have permitted that activity across the state lines and escape state regulations. But the court ruled that insurance was, quote, a not a transaction of commerce. So um, that case didn't get overturned because it's pretty bizarre. It's not how the courts have handled a lot of other issues uh, of commerce until 1944 in USV Southeastern Underwriters. Then they said, yes, this is interstate commerce. So Congress immediately moves for all these lobbyists at the state level who work for the insurance companies to pass the very next year, the McCarran-Ferguson Act. And it returned the status quo of Paul v. Virginia. And we've had it ever since. There was state regulation of insurance, mandatory licensing requirements in each state and other state laws. But the main thing was you couldn't uh, buy state uh, insurance across state lines. So why is this so important? Well, State health insurance uh, states began piling on mandates, okay? Uh, 21 states, as of a couple of years ago, my, my figures are not completely up to date, but as of a couple of years ago, 21 states required maternity care in a health insurance package being sold in their state, even if you were a single male. 
13 states required infertility treatments to be included in a health insurance package sold in their state, even if you didn't want a family. 45 states, so nearly every state in the country, required drug and alcohol treatment, even if you didn't drink or use drugs. It had to be in any health insurance package you borrow or bought. So we begin to wonder, why is uh, insurance so expensive? Why can people who, are, who have less means, why can they not afford insurance? Well, if you start to pile on mandates that are imposed and they were imposed by the states, then you're going to start to find that the insurance goes up. You're buying things that you didn't need. And so that was the first stage. The other thing I wanted to, the other kind of ancient history, more than a century ago, was that previous to 1910, um, while medicine was still in the Stone Ages, the, the idea of government-provided or funded medical insurance was both a union and socialist idea. I mean, literally, these, uh, you know, there were socialists and unions back then, and they were proud to be called that, but this was their deal. But few Americans thought they actually needed medical insurance. Babies tended to be born at home. People uh, died at home with a doctor bringing pain medicine. Uh, diseases that were, are treatable today maybe weren't back then. And, and, and uh, those that were were kind of not very good in many cases. But a revolution to professionalized medicine began in the 1940s. So the medical treatments that were of these, uh, particularly for city dwellers, tended to be done at hospitals. So then people began purchasing medical insurance packages. Notice I didn't use the word health insurance. And, they, and it was designed primarily to protect a family from losing their house and their savings due to a catastrophic illness, particularly if the wage earner was the head of the household. Okay, so Michelle, let me quote from Melissa Thomason. She's at my she was at Miami University at the time she wrote this. She said, quote, given the rudimentary state of medical technology before 1920, most people had very low medical expenditures. A 1918 Bureau of Labor Statistics survey of 211 families living in Columbus, Ohio, found that only 7.6 of their average annual medical expenditures paid for hospital care. In fact, the chief cost associated with illness was not the cost of medical care, but rather the fact that sick people couldn't work and didn't get paid. And the bills, obviously, Howard, continued to pile up. So in 1919, the state of Illinois' a study largely reported that lost wages due to sickness were four times larger than the medical expenditures associated with treating the illness. As a result, most people didn't buy health insurance. Households purchased sickness insurance, similar to today's disability insurance. So you might think of like Aflac. You see Aflac advertised on TV. That was the kind of insurance that people thought they needed. They were still paying their doctors directly. And what we spent our time talking about in podcast number one was this personal relationship that wasn't interfered with, that personal relationship that you had with your doctor that now is, in, uh, is the insurance company has stepped into the middle of it. Your employer has stepped into the middle of it. An army of bureaucrats between your doctor's office and the insurance company have stepped into the middle of it. But back then, people directly paid their doctor for services rendered. So let's fast forward to the 1930s. In 1929, actually, Baylor Hospital launched a program that eventually evolved into Blue Cross. So here's how Blue Cross started. It was a nonprofit health insurance uh, com local community organization. Blue Cross set up hospital networks, reducing competition between the hospitals, allowing them to serve more low-income individuals. They got a nonprofit tax break and were somewhat charitable in their approach. Everyone, for example, was charged the same rate, which does not occur these days at the hospital, regardless of their demographic. Now, what Baylor was really providing was prepaid hospital coverage. You were basically paying for your bill in advance. Hospitals had a hard time collecting their bills because when the invoice was issued, it seemed so large. So that they, instead of um, 
you know, dressing these things up with cosmetic costs for hospital stays and so forth. Uh, Baylor's pre-play pan plan charge just six dollars fixed for a 21 day uh day hospital stay that's today in inflation adjusted dollars that's a mere 75 dollars now we have more technological advances it's hard to imagine that we would pay 75 dollars for a hospital stay today but we would gladly pay several times that if we uh even if, if 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 we could and we would pay it out of pocket or we'd be willing to pay it out of pocket if the rates were much more reasonable than they are today. It's just simply the fact, that the case, that because of insurance, hospitals pad their bills significantly. And this has been covered in detail in a lot of places uh, elsewhere. <coughs> but these pre- prepaid medical plans faded into the sunset as insurance companies started to see an opportunity. And what happened next seals their fate. And that is during World War II, that, that phase of the Great Depression, this is the most important part of the story. We could have started here, and I could have still made my point. The Roosevelt administration imposed wage and price controls. That meant that your salary or how much you were getting paid was tied to a government regulation. It wasn't a matter between you and your employer during that phase. And businesses seeking talent had a hard time acquiring it, and they had no flexibility in their wage structure to attract new personnel. So, you know, if you're getting paid one thing over here, why would you leave and go to to another job if you were going to get paid the same thing? So companies found a loophole. Remember that word loophole from earlier in our broadcast? They found a legal method to get around the problem. They were very creative, and they came up with medical insurance. This, This permitted a form of increased compensation in the form of a benefit. This small step has huge implications because there's no other country, for example, in the Western world where your, in your health insurance or your medical insurance or your medical plan is tied to your employer. You don't buy your auto and homeowners policies through your employer, for example. <coughs> After the war, Congress took note of the trend of employer-provided health care and decided to encourage it. Okay? They saw a political opportunity here. So they started offering the employers tax deductibility for the medical insurance they were providing to their employees to encourage more employers to do this. And indeed, more did. Uh, by the 1960s, Americans were still paying most of their health care expenses out of pocket, but everybody expected to have what was that then called a hospitalization plan. And by the way, most people were asking their doctor how much stuff has cost. Now, we could get into a whole host of things that have happened since, but I just want to make a couple of quick points about how this has developed since. First, in order to to make these compensation packages more attractive, businesses wanted something more than mere medical insurance. They wanted health care plans that covered doctor visits, basic prenatal care, prescriptions, and dental work. Medical insurance disappeared, and because of the increase in demand, costs exploded. The other thing I want to point out is is that Ted Kennedy and others devised a cost-controlling plan, because after these costs exploded, they said, we've got to do something to begin to contain the costs. And what they came up with was called an HMO, Health Maintenance Organizations. This was the cutting edge of democratic health care legislation in the late 1960s, early 70s. and, and many people are familiar with that model, and it, it was very much disparaged by the time the late 90s were over. So this was the previous attempt, a uh, successful attempt by the Democrats before Obamacare to really uh, get a foothold in the system. And, you know, it all circles back to this problem mandates. And here's where I want to conclude, Howard. Once the state and federal government were so deeply entrenched in healthcare, so deeply involved, and by the way, spending so much on Medicare and Medicaid themselves, they started mandating coverage in these healthcare plans. Uh, so that the cost of these packages got more and more and more and more expensive. They were covering more and more things. People weren't paying out of pocket. Their employer was paying. They were using these services more and more. 
And as a result, everything, everything in healthcare exploded in price until we ended up with the crisis that ended, that brought us to the moment of Obamacare. So, Howard, there's a little bit of history for you about how we got to where we we are. I certainly would not argue that Obamacare was the beginning of the healthcare debacle that we have in this country. We've not had a true market in healthcare for well over a century. And, and Downsize DC has a, uh, a campaign around this very topic, right? Yes, Howard, we do. Uh, we call it End the Health Insurance Cartel. It is one of the healthcare proposals that people will find on the Our Proposals page at DownsizeDC.org. If you go to DownsizeDC.org and you click the menu, you will see that we have an, one of the options there is Our Proposals. Find the campaign in the healthcare section there that says End the Health Insurance Cartel. And basically what we're proposing is to dramatically reduce the incredible expense mandates caused by permitting Americans to buy health insurance in whatever state they choose. If you have the ability, Howard, to cross state lines and your state has a bunch of mandates and my state doesn't, then you could come buy insurance in my state at a lot less expense. Now, the last time I researched this was during the Obamacare debate. And at that time, it was the case that uh, a package that you were paying for if you were in New Jersey uh, that cost close to $25,000 a year, that same insured person living in Indiana was paying $4,500 a year. And the difference was the number of mandates that were piled on New Jersey workers. So obviously, you would choose to go across those lines and you because you don't want all necessarily want all of those services, you could much more easily afford a $4,500 plan than a $25,000 plan. And that would begin to create competition. And we know that competition has the effect in general of driving down prices and making and improving benefits to consumers. So these campaigns really, uh, move towards this idea that we should be able to take action as individual citizens in our own interest. And that builds us towards a, a new topic. So really what we're talking about here is the right of the individual to choose what services and, and what uh, what programs they'd like to take advantage of and, and to encourage competition in those areas. But that leads to a bigger question, and that is, uh, is anyone really qualified to give orders? No, I don't think they are. And I think we can pr demonstrate or prove this scientifically. Um, it's a disaster when that happens. So the uh, Stanford prison experiment, a lot of people know about this from legend. And in fact, it, the, this, this experiment's no longer within the uh, psychology profession. It's no longer uh, permissible to even conduct it again because it is so dangerous. But we, did see, we have seen evidence of it in other areas of life. Essentially, it was this. A group of, of young men uh, college age were, were paid to come in and participate in a, in a study where they were randomly divided. No, none of their demographic factors were selected for in any way. They were literally just randomly divided into two camps. One group was going to be prison guards. The other was going to be prisoners. And what they found was that the prison guards became quite sadistic. It didn't take long. The experiment was supposed to last a certain length of time. It got cut short, severely short, because I think it was by day three or four. The stuff that was going on was bad enough that they, for the safety of the prisoners, they had to bring it to an end. And here was normal, regular college-age kids who moments before had no authority, given that authority, and they began to rage. And again, this type of, of experiment has been duplicated, but there are, even though it, and it's not illegal to do it anymore, ethical to conduct it. 
Uh, but we've also seen examples of this. Uh, one of the most recent uh, dramatic examples uh, was the, the case of the Abu Ghraib uh, prison, uh, where we had a reservist come in and begin, you know, with too much power, abusing that power. Uh, Lord Acton famously said that uh, power tends to be abused and absolute power is abused absolutely. And so, Stanford, it's, this isn't just merely a maxim. It's not merely, you know, your grandmother's advice. We have scientific evidence that really power, giving people power, leads to abuse of power. Okay, so we see the risk in giving orders, but what about following orders? It's important to, quote unquote, obey those in authority, right? Well, you know, that's interesting because there's the flip side of, of the Stanford prison experiment, right? The prisoners themselves, again, random students who were fairly confident and normal before, suddenly became very docile, right? There was no reason that they really had to put up with most of the crap that they were given, but they were following a script. You know, it's funny, I was given a, a responsibility uh, at one point in my life that uh, came to me unexpectedly and involved a group, and I was put in the position of leadership. And I was uh, surprised. I was stunned by how differently I was treated when I was put in this particular position. Um, I found myself trying to live up to the position that I was in, and I found people treating me differently. Well, here in Stanford, the prison experiment, these prisoners became awfully docile. They really began accepting it. But there's a better experiment that shows that really no one's really qualified to obey. We can Everybody kind of maybe understands or realizes there's danger in, in, in who gives the orders. But what about following orders? Well, in the Milgram experiment, which has since been duplicated at several levels, we find that that uh, uh, people were, were, were told that they were going to ask questions of somebody in a booth. They could not see this person, and, uh, but they could hear them. They could communicate with them. And they had someone standing next to them with a lab coat giving them instructions with a clipboard in hand. So they had all the air of authority. And what happened was every time the person that was hidden gave the wrong answer to the question to punish them and to help them improve their behavior, the, the, the subject of the, of, the, of the study would have to give them an electric shock. And they kept, turning, they kept being told by the person in the lab coat, turn up the intensity, make the shock worse. And it was stunning how many people, a high percentage of people, were willing to follow these orders. Some said no initially, indeed, and some along the way quit couldn't do it. They gave up and ran out of the room or they refused the order, but a stunning number of people were willing to con were willing to follow the order initially. Uh, a large portion of them were willing to turn the crank at, uh, up to some some level and some never got to a point where they said, "I'm done." They just went ahead and followed the order that was given to them. So this gives us a suggestion that it is also dangerous to give orders. And in fact, we learn this the hardest way of all in famously in history in the Nuremberg trials. When we got to the Nuremberg trials, there were people who uh, uh, said, you know, listen, I was just following orders. And indeed, a lot of people complied. We learned this also the hard way historically through something called Stockholm Syndrome. We find that prisoners of war not only become docile uh, and, and fearful, but their psychology can be so warped through the process that in some cases they come to admire and love and want to please their captors. Like they emotionally attach themselves to them. This happens in kidnappings. This happens in prisoner of war situations. So human psychology is corrupted by coercive power. Um, and, and people who uh, are under the spell of coercive power are also corrupted in that behavior. 
So I would like to, if I could, if you want to maybe recapitulate these arguments uh, and you find that you're in a discussion with somebody, particularly if you're online, a great place or resource that we have available at the Zero Aggression Project, which is zeroaggressionproject.org, are mental levers. And Howard, the, the mental lever that we're looking at here, the question that we're answering is, should anyone have coercive authority over others? Um, and it is in this mental lever that we talk about the Milgram and Stanford prison ex, uh, experiment. We talk about Stockholm Syndrome, the importance of empathy. empathy. Uh, these mental levers are short tools. They're usually less than 200 words. They're not always. Some of them are longer, but most of them are less than 200 words. They're, they're a little conversational thing that you can share the link to uh, on a Facebook, in a Facebook dialogue or an email, or you can just print out and lend to a friend uh, to help make a point. They help explain uh, ways of thinking that we employ as voluntarist libertarians. They're called mental levers. This one says, should anyone have coercive authority over others? You can find it in the mental lever section at zeroaggressionproject.org, and I hope people will come check it out. Okay. If you'd like to join the conversation, um, there are several ways you can get in touch with us on Facebook, uh, slash downsize DC, or you can send us an email at feedback at downsizedc.org. And as always, on downsizedc.org, there are comment sections on each one of the posts that contain the players that you're probably listening to right now. So scroll to the bottom and you can add your comment there. And we've just added hope- a new we've just added a new player, right? Since the first episode. Yes, we're we're on uh, Google Play Music as well as as iTunes, and uh, we're we're moving towards. Uh, we also have a Stitcher uh, player as well, so you can find us on any of those uh, major podcast outlets. So feel free to subscribe there in iTunes specifically. You can subscribe, and you'll be notified every time there's a new episode. Okay, thanks for listening today, and uh, we hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next week. I'm done coughing. Gotcha. (laughs) Okay. There we go. I'm going to add that as a little post credit scene. (laughs) (laughs) Bloopers. Right.